This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And I'm really excited about this episode because this is not only an incredible adventure story, it really is, it's also an important one too. I think you're going to like it. Are you ready? Let's go. Antonio Bolingbroke-Kent is a travel writer, author, broadcaster, and an absolute motorcycle nutcase. Her latest book, Land of the Dawnlit Mountains, chronicles her journey across a forgotten far northeastern corner of India, from the jungles of Assam to the snowy Himalayan passes. Like all her work, it is beautifully written, incredibly inspiring, well-researched, deep, all the things that the best travel writing is all about. But we're going before that. We're going to her best story from the road, her favorite one, the trip that really made her name. We're going on one of the most iconic but difficult road trips on the planet to a place filled with wonder, beauty, and tragedy, a place slowly disappearing and changing, a place that needed documenting, that needed someone to shine a light on what's happening there. And that's why she went, and that's exactly what she did. We're going to ride the 2,000-mile Ho Chi Minh Trail across Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. It's an amazing story. She's a really funny and articulate person. She's tough, she's determined, and she is well up for an adventure. You're going to love it. But if you want to hear the full story, you can download the book now on Audible and other audiobook platforms. It's called A Short Ride in the Jungle, the Ho Chi Minh Trail by Motorcycle. Which is a bit of a joke, actually, because what it definitely is not is a short ride. In fact, it's one of the hardest motorcycle routes on the planet. And she does it solo on a tiny pink Honda Cub she named, very aptly, The Pink Panther. So download that book right now. She reads it herself. She reads it incredibly well. And it is just beautiful. You can also follow her on Instagram and Twitter at AntsBK, that's A-N-T-S-B-K. And her website is theitinerant.co.uk. She posts lots of cool, amazing stuff about all her adventures. So please do go and follow her right now. So we're just about to get going. But before we do, thank you so much to everyone that has been sharing and supporting the show. It really does mean so much to me. You are helping to spread this message, our message of love for the outdoors, unity, and the pure joy of experience exploring this amazing planet of ours. If you share those values, if you're a traveler too, please tell a friend and help this message grow. The Instagram and Facebook is at Armchair Explorer Podcast. I post lots of behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and more from each episode, as well as some of my own photography and adventure inspiration. You can also find all that good stuff on the website, armchair-explorer.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter, and I'd love it if you did. Remember, you can also book trips inspired by the show. I've set up an adventure travel agency to help you plan and book your dream trip. So do get in touch. Let's make that adventure happen. But for now, don't worry about that, because we are just about to set off for the jungles of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia to ride the 2,000-mile Ho Chi Minh Trail by a motorcycle. It's an incredible adventure. But first, let's find out a little bit more about Antonia. 
My childhood was really formative in terms of my travel career because I grew up in a really rural part of North Norfolk in England. And I was always off exploring and climbing trees and being a real tomboy. And my parents gave me so much freedom and there was never any sense of like, don't do that because you're a girl or don't do that because it's dangerous. So I think I just grew up very free and quite bold and with this real sense of adventure, which, you know, all children are really explorers and have a great sense of adventure. But I think now children are like mollycoddled too much and told like, don't do that, it's too dangerous, especially if they're girls. Um, so I think my, my childhood was very important, but it was really my tuk-tuk trip when I was 27 that started it all. I did that trip with my best friend from school, Joe, and we were inseparable as teenagers and always really naughty. And then in her late teens, she had very serious mental health issues and spent about four years in and out of, of mental health institutions. And when she got better, she rang me one day and said, I really want to do something to celebrate being better. And I want to raise money for Mind, the mental health charity. And she said, do you want to drive a tuk-tuk from Bangkok to Brighton with me? And I was like, are you better? <laughs> and I thought about it. And you know what? I said, no. I had a safe job in London. I had a flat. I was working in TV. And then a few weeks after that, one of my very good friends very sadly took her own life. And it just made me think, what the hell am I doing? Life's for living. Don't not do things because of fear and because you want to be safe. That's not how to live a life. So I rang my friend Joe and said, right, let's do it. Let's drive that tuk-tuk. We flew out to Bangkok. We had uh, a bright pink custom-built tuk-tuk made for us called Ting Tong. And we spent 98 days driving 12,561 miles across 12 countries from Bangkok to Brighton. And we had earthquakes and landslides and marriage proposals and numerous breakdowns. But we made it. And that just completely changed my whole perspective on life and the world. And after that, I just thought, I want to do more of this. I'm not going back to my job in TV. I'm not going to spend my life sitting in an office. I'm going to do more of this travel shit. And that is exactly what she did. But first off, what an absolutely mad thing to do. I love it. And that is not the only Tookathon inspired piece of crazy we've had on this show either. Check out Simon Parker's episode about his journey across India on a Tookathon for a bit of fun as well. So they survived that. She caught the travel bug. Life is for the living. And she ended up over the next 12 years or so, up to this day, doing a lot more of that travel shit. Sensibly, not all on tuk-tuks, but not sensibly, using for the most part only a mildly safer form of travel, but far cooler, the motorbike. I got into bikes in a really funny way. When we did that tuk-tuk trip, in order to get all the right permissions to get through China, we had we were told we had to get our motorbike license. So suddenly there I was in Norfolk in February with three weeks to get my motorcycle license, having never thought about motorbikes before. But then I fell in love with it. And yeah, bikes are, they're exciting. They're visceral. There's that whiff of risk and excitement. And when you're riding a bike, you're so connected to your environment. You can feel every bump. You can smell everything, whether that's the beautiful frangipani flower you've just ridden past or the steaming pile of buffalo turd. It's just, you know, you've got the wind on your face. You've got the flies in your teeth. It's just exciting. And also... My journeys have all happened in Asia. 
And in Asia, motorbikes are how people travel on the whole. It's the cheap, affordable way of travel. And I always much prefer traveling on a mode of transport which is more recognizable to people. I haven't sort of set off with a, an intention to make it as difficult as possible to myself or to be like really obtuse and choose the most extraordinary vehicle. Generally, it's been what vehicle is available in those locations which is cheap and easy to fix and that I can pick it up if it falls over. So that was that was the reason behind choosing the Honda Cub for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. There'll probably be bikers listening to this who'll be like, what? She rode 2,000 miles through the mud and mountains on a tiny Honda Cub. Uh, why didn't she choose a proper dirt bike? But actually, Honda Cubs are cheap, idiot-proof, indestructible, supposedly, and ubiquitous in Southeast Asia. So really, it was the ideal bike for the journey well, I thought it was ah yes the Honda Cub diminutive in stature but a legend among bikers the Discovery Channel voted them the greatest motorcycle ever the Beach Boys immortalised it in song and petrol head royalty James May from Top Gear called them the single most influential product of humankind's creativity I mean, up against the wheel, that's tough to argue, but you've got to respect the passion. And the fact remains, they are the single most produced motor vehicle in history, with more than 100 million sold. And yes, they are nearly indestructible. As we'll see, Antonia did a pretty good job of trying. But to give you an idea of how tough they are, Charlie Borman actually threw one off a roof, laden down with 200 kilos of pizza and cooking oil, but it refused to explode. So in that sense, it really is a good choice for an insane journey like this. Because what's truly impressive about Antonia's journey is not so much that she did the route itself, though that is impressive. Most people do the backpacker-friendly tarmac version. Very few attempt the muddy guts of the original trail over the Trongsong Mountains. And those that do load up on 4x4s and tour guides and all the rest. What's truly impressive is that she did it alone. I just had this really strong feeling that I wanted to do this journey alone that as great as companionship is, companionship kind of makes us idle. It gives us masks to hide behind. You know, if you're afraid of something or if you're bad at something like me with mechanics, companionship means there's always someone else to hide behind, someone else to do that thing you're bad at. And I also think so many of us go through life without really finding out our true selves, who we really are, what we're really capable of. And going on long journey on your own when you've got no one else to rely on is a really good way of diving deep, of finding who you really are beneath it all. So I thought, I want to, I want to see who I am. I want to see, am I a man or a mouse? You know, how am I going to react? Being alone in the jungle for ages, when I break down, I have to fix the bike. Um, so I guess it was a personal challenge as well as this real desire to find out about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Solo travel is different. It forces you into situations, it forces you to learn and figure things out. It also, as she writes, makes you acutely aware of your emotions, which I think is really interesting and perhaps why solo travel is such a catalyst for personal growth too. All of which is amazing. Solo travel is incredibly rewarding, but it's also hard when you're somewhere you don't speak the language and those situations you're forced into are going to be challenging. 
which they were. Because what she doesn't really go into there is not only is she bad at mechanics, she'd also never changed a tyre on a cub before, which on a remote road where you're probably going to get a puncture about four times a day is so gutsy, but also potentially dangerous. So this is a proper adventure. But it's also more than that, too. The Ho Chi Minh Trail was a military supply route that was developed during the 60s and 70s during the Vietnam War. And it moved men and supplies from communist-controlled North Vietnam to the American-backed South Vietnam. And the trail started in 1959 as a footpath, um, which North Vietnamese soldiers called Boy Doys used to walk for six months from north to south, carrying up to their own weight in rice, supplies, ammunition. And then by the time the war ended in 1975, it was this 12,000 mile gargantuan network of footpaths and supply bases and fuel lines spreading throughout Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. And now I'd watched Vietnam War movies, I knew a little bit about the trail, but I really got interested in it when I was producing a BBC TV show about the trail about 10 years ago. And we were taking two celebrities on a trip down the trail. Um, it was a pretty bumpy ride in more ways than one. Don't think the celebrities were quite prepared for the rigors of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. <laughs> and during that trip, I just thought this is incredible. This is a part of Southeast Asia, which is rarely seen. And it's this extraordinary piece of history, which is vanishing so fast because of time, nature and development. So I decided I really wanted to go back and explore it before it was too late. Um, so that was where the idea for the journey came from. And what really struck me was that it was four decades after the end of the Vietnam War and it was just being swallowed by the jungle and by roads being built over it. But also the fact that there was still so much of the war left. There was UXO everywhere. There were whole villages built out of war scrap. There were massive bomb craters. It felt both very present and dangerously disappearing. When she says UXO, if you're not familiar with that term, she's referring to unexploded ordnance bombs, basically, that fell into the jungle during the Vietnam War but didn't explode, and they're still primed and deadly to this day. And we're going to hear more about that later, but just to give you an idea, in Laos alone, one-third of the country remains to this day contaminated with UXO left over from the war, including an estimated 80 million cluster bombs. If we take the UK as a comparison, which is roughly the same size as Laos, that's like not being able to go anywhere south of London because you're liable to get blown up. And that is one of the most tragic and shameful parts of the entire war, whose legacy, as we'll also see, is still affecting the people that live along the Ho Chi Minh Trail today. But before she could contend with that, she first had to face the Hanoi traffic. It was time for the adventure to begin. Like with any big adventure, it had been months of anticipation and quite a lot of sleepless nights thinking I was going to be eaten by a tiger and blown up by UXO and killed in a motorbike crash. And I got to Hanoi feeling quite kind of nerve jangly. And the biggest thing was picking up my motorbike, which some guys I'd met the year before had like pimped and sorted for me. And I first met her in this Hanoi warehouse, which was full of um, old Soviet-built Urals and Minsks, these big, burly weightlifters of bikes. And in the middle of this warehouse was this little pink Honda Cub. And she was all shiny and perfect. And I remember getting on her for the first time, feeling really jet lagged and just being plunged into the maelstrom 
that's the Hanoi traffic. And just thinking, shit, like, what have I let myself in for? I don't know if there's a highway code, but it got ripped up a long time ago. You've got buffalo carts, you've got taxis careering in all directions, you've got people who've got mopeds loaded up with an unholy amount of things. You'll have six people, a cupboard, a couple of pigs, and they're still managing to steer it through the traffic the wrong way. So yeah, I kind of, my nerves made me talk out loud and like sort of commentate on everything I was seeing, like some demented racing pundit. A demented racing pundit. I don't know how you drive, but I recognise a lot of myself in that. And I'm not contending with anything like Hanoi, which, by the way, the accepted wisdom for crossing the road there, just to give you an idea of what it's like, is to go very slowly so that the traffic actually has time to see you and swerve out of the way. If you try and go fast, well, you remember that game Frogger, right? So, she picked up the bike, the Pink Panther, all sparkly and new, braved the Hanoi traffic, survived the buffalo carts and overloaded mopeds, and then finally, she was on the road, and there's no feeling like it. There I was, riding my bike through northern Vietnam with the mountains rising up on one side and the mist and the paddies and all the excitement of being somewhere completely new, and then you just have that feeling of, like, yes! I'm on the road, I'm free, I'm doing it. This is what I want, to be having an adventure and riding into the unknown. I was in Vietnam for a week before I crossed over to Laos and it was the perfect introduction because apart from the few, you know, offers of a lunchtime quickie. Okay, some context needed. People got a little confused by Antonia. She was a Westerner in very remote parts of the country and a woman on her own and riding a shiny pink motorcycle And staying in brothels. Not intentionally, of course. It's just that, sadly, in many cases, that was the only place to stay. A lot of women would have been rightly outraged by these approaches, especially, as Antonia writes in the book, because she was massively undervalued at only 500,000 dong, which is about 20 bucks. But she took it all in her stride, even when she had to stay in freshly used rooms without fresh sheets, Needless to say, if you plan on doing this route, bring a sleeping bag. But she wasn't there for quickies and she wasn't there for Egyptian cotton. Here, at the start of the journey, she was there to meet two old fighter pilots called George and Roger. So when we'd been filming the previous year with the BBC, I had met these two US veterans from something called the Misty Squadron, which was a top secret elite fighter squadron whose one job was to take off from their base in southern Vietnam every day fly over the, the Truong Song Mountains, which is the border between Vietnam and Laos, and fly very low over enemy territory in Laos and see if they could spot movement on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They then call in the bombers. And both of them had survived, obviously. And then from the 90s onwards, both of them had been drawn back to Vietnam, really by a need for closure, by a sense of guilt by compassion, and they were both involved with charitable projects there. So I was really lucky to meet them. They were both in their late 70s and really interesting men. And it was amazing to get their perspective on what it had been like, why they had joined their sense of patriotism, the fear of communism that was so abundant then, and how they'd been since the war. The Misties were an elite group. Between 1967 and 1970, only 157 men served as pilots, all of them volunteers. And their sole mission was to stem the flow of enemy activity down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. 
it was incredibly dangerous. They were flying low. They could get shot down by gunners at any time. They had to jink and jive constantly to avoid getting hit. Those that served, one in five were shot down. Now, whatever you think of the war, they were undeniably brave. But what makes George and Roger heroes, in my opinion, is that they came back. Some of those 80 million cluster bombs still lying in the jungle today were theirs. And they came back to finally make amends, which they're doing through their charity work. What they didn't expect was how close one of those cluster bombs came to making its own kind of amends on them. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We crossed the border into Laos together and the border we crossed to get into Laos was called the Muzar Pass and it's where the majority of trail traffic had poured through back in the 60s and 70s. And America had been so keen to cut the trail here that it had become the most bombed place on earth. The North Vietnamese soldiers used to call it um, walking through the door of death and it was just destroyed this whole area and it's still loaded with UXO. And George and Roger had said to me that every morning as they were flying over this particular pinnacle of caste, they'd be shot at by this North Vietnamese gunner. He would always miss the planes. It was like he was reliably missing the planes. And this legend grew among the pilots in Misty Squadron that there was this young North Vietnamese gunner who was purposefully missing them. He didn't want to kill anyone. And they called him the kid on the caste. And ever since the end of the war, the, the Misty pilots who have a reunion every year have been trying to find this kid on the caste through various Vietnamese networks. And so when I was with George and Roger, uh, we located where this cast was and we went to this mountain. Obviously, he wasn't going to be there, but just to look at it. And this whole area is loaded with UXO. It was one of the most bombed places on Earth. And one of the things you do not do there is walk off the path. But in our excitement to get to this cast and see if there was anything, any old bullets or an old gun emplacement there, we walked off the path. And there were four of us walking in a row. There was George Roger... There was a a trail expert I'd become friends with called Digby. And as we were walking through this bit of jungle, Digby suddenly went, stop! And right there in front of Digby's foot, like six inches in front of his foot, was a cluster bomb. And a cluster bomb is about the size of a tennis ball. And it's just this rusted little thing sitting in the leaves. But if Digby had trod on it, it would have blown up and it would have killed all of us. And these things are all over Laos still, and they still kill a lot of people. So 
That was quite scary and we had to make our way safely out of the jungle again and back onto the path. But it was a real reminder of just the UXO problem there and what people there have to live with every day. One step, one more step without looking down and that would have been it. And that really brings home what an everyday thing this is for the people that live along the trail. Just a few steps into the jungle, a jungle that they rely on for much of their livelihood. And it's literally like entering a minefield. Since 1975, more than 100,000 Vietnamese have died from unexploded bombs dropped by the Americans during the war. 100,000. And the story in Laos is even more tragic. Lao was officially neutral during the war, but because the trail went through it, America did their damnedest to cut the trail, so that was why it was bombed so heavily. And Lao is still the most bombed country on Earth per capita. It was bombed on average every eight minutes for almost a decade, and more bombs were dropped on neutral Lao by America than by all parties in the entire Second World War. Millions of tonnes of of bombs were dropped, and of these, 10 to 30% didn't explode, which means they're still live in the ground. I was going through villages where the whole villages were built out of war scrap, and not only would there be huge 500-pound bombs lying around, which people were trying to sell for scrap metal, but houses were built out of bits of US aeroplane, and people would be paddling canoes made out of discarded aeroplane fuel canisters and cows would be wearing bells made out of old mortar fuses. It was just as if the villages were built out of war scrap. And when we were driving along these red dirt tracks through the jungle, bomb craters were everywhere. I mean, bomb craters big enough to swallow a jeep or a double-decker bus. And it had been bombed so heavily, this area, that part of the mountains had crumbled. So it was pretty shocking. And I was raising money and awareness for a British NGO called Mines Advisory Group. And in Vietnam, just before I crossed into Laos, I'd spent a day with one of their clearance teams. And Vietnam was bombed even more heavily than Laos. And one of the people I met that day was a woman who had lost her son, her eight-year-old son, about six months previously, because he'd been out trying to collect scrap metal so he could sell it to buy a kite. And he picked up a cluster bomb and it blew him up. And this is happening all the time still. And America is not doing enough to clean up their mess. I'm not going to go into that too much, but I will say, in just over 20 years, America has given Laos something like $200 million to help clear UXO from the jungles. It sounds like a lot, until you realise that in that same time, the American military has spent something like $20 trillion. So that $200 million represents less than 0.001% of their total budget. If they had knocked just one of those zeros off and upped the amount to 0.01%, the problem would have been solved a long time ago. I will put details up on the website of the Mines Advisory Group charity that Antonia was raising money for, or just go to maginternational.org to find out more. But despite all the tragedy, and there was plenty beyond the remnants of the war too, there was also massive amounts of illegal deforestation and mining, which is devastating the wildlife, the landscape and the communities. Despite that, Laos was also spectacular. Laos is such a beautiful country. Um, Unfortunately, there's been a huge amount of deforestation in the last 30 years. But yeah, I remember so clearly the moment I crossed the border from Vietnam, the Muzar Pass, which is this just tiny border with a few shacks. And it was just like drawing back the curtain of a theatre because suddenly there was Lao below me and it was for the monsoon. It was really hot and 
the jungle was just shimmering in this noon inferno. And I could just see forests and limestone mountains just plonked in the middle of this forest. And there's only 7 million people in Laos. It's very wild and very beautiful. I'd had days where I was riding through the jungle and these huge trees on either side, these great walls of greenery and riding through these clouds of kaleidoscopic butterflies and this just real sense of being in a really wild, beautiful place. Um, but yet there was so much devastation still from the war. You know, there'd be a bomb crater there and then a bombed out truck from 50 years ago. And then you go to a village with all the war scrap. I really fell in love with the place, but also felt very sad about what had happened and, and what was happening. I think that juxtaposition between the beauty of the landscape and the friendliness of the people, apart from the offers of quickies, with the ghosts of what had happened and what was still happening, must have been very strange and unnerving. She talks of feeling those ghosts, of feeling like she was being watched, feeling their presence all around. But that was the point, too. She wanted to expose this underbelly of corruption and devastation. She didn't want to shield her eyes from what was hard to see. But at the same time, she wanted to shine a light on everything that was good and hopeful, too. And there was plenty of that. She writes, I rode south through a lost world landscape of tinder-dry jungle and pinnacles of slate-grey karst. Dawdling along at 20 miles per hour, I drank in this otherness, cascading rice paddies, lead sullen water buffaloes, farmers tended to their paddies, hinged at the waist like compasses. I rode south through thick jungle and scruffy tribal villages, scattering oinking black piglets and scrawny chickens as I passed. Foreigners rarely, if ever, came this way. And while some of the ragged children ran excitedly after me, others simply froze and stared open-mouthed. Several groups of women hitched up their sarongs and bolted into the forest, terrified, like deer startled by a wolf. I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else. But it was here also that the riding got really, really tough. In Vietnam, 90 million people, tarmac, people everywhere, then... Crossing the border, just bam, different world, just red dust and jungle and wilderness, no people. This was when I did wish I had off-road tyres, which I hadn't been able to get in Hanoi because I had these city slicks on and it was just red dirt tracks. There had been quite a lot of early monsoon downpours, so a lot of track was just churned into this red mud and it was very slippy and there were I was crossing 10 to 20 rivers and streams a day, which was really tough. You know, some of them I was just, you know, feet up, throttle on and gun it. Others were these little makeshift bamboo bridges, which wobbled a lot as you crossed them. Some of the others I had to cross on tiny little narrow canoes, just like trying not to look down. Um, so that was a real adventure, getting across all these rivers and also just... It was mountains. I was in the, the middle of the Truong Song Mountains, the Anamites, and riding a cub up and down these really steep slopes. Some of these slopes were so steep, I remember particularly coming out of riverbeds and almost having to like lift the bike like a weightlifter up these really steep slopes. And it was hard work. Yeah, I didn't have a planned itinerary, but I knew from the map that there were dotted villages and I, I was carrying a jungle hammock so if I got stuck I would sleep in the jungle but because of UXO and because of the odd tiger I, I didn't think it was such a good idea <laughs> so generally I turn up in these villages where there would always be one government guest house but these were the brothels um, and I remember one day after it had been such a tough ride down from the mountains 
um, on this really deep red sand. I'd fallen off a few times, I'd cut my shin open, really deep, bloody gash. It's poured with rain, the bike had stopped a few times. I'd been like pushing the bike and riding through this storm and just thinking, I just want to get to this village. And finally, in the dark, I reached this village and saw these lights and it was obviously a bar of some sort. It was so random, middle of nowhere. And I just rode the bike into the middle of this bar where all these people were singing karaoke and everyone just stopped, like, mouths open, looked at me. <laughs> and I kind of, um, I said, Hong Ham, which means hotel. And they were like, yeah, pointed over there. And of course, it was a brothel. Um, so... The guy went in and kind of cleaned all the used condoms and cigarettes and broken glass from, <laughs> from under the bed. It was really gross. And then I spent the night singing karaoke with these two prostitutes. As you do. I just have this amazing image of Antonia bleeding and soaking wet like some kind of deranged jungle yeti, driving the Pink Panther actually into this bar and the people just being like, where the hell did she come from? And then in the next breath, just passing her the microphone and being like, karaoke? Because if there's one thing that binds us together, one thing that cements our shared humanity, it is the pure joy of getting drunk and belting out your favorite tune badly in front of a room full of strangers. She'd finished Laos in style, but poor old Panther was starting to feel the toll. She was breaking down regularly, sounding like a bronchitic tractor, as she describes it. There were times when she wouldn't start at all, but... Antonia got her going, she changed those tires, she figured out those mechanics, and she didn't let this or anything else stand in her way. There was just one country left before the end of the trail. Cambodia was the third country I was travelling through, and the one I knew the least about. And for some reason, I just hadn't done much research. I just pushed it to the bottom of the pile. It was much harder because... The trail had never really been very well developed there. I knew from looking at old military maps that it had gone through this northeast corner on the tri-border with Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. But really because of what had become after the Khmer Rouge and because the Vietnamese and the Cambodians never had a very good relationship, the trail had just vanished from existence and memory. When the war ended in Vietnam in April 1975, about a week later, the Khmer Rouge, led by Pol Pot, who was a former teacher and Buddhist monk, um, marched into Phnom Penh and took over the country with the aim of turning Cambodia into a agrarian, communist, classless society. And over the next five years, Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge inflicted the most horrendous suffering on the country, systematically wiped out the intelligentsia, marched everyone out of the cities to these essentially concentration camps in the country, um, turned Cambodia into what John Pilger, the journalist, has described as Auschwitz in Asia. But in five years, a quarter of Cambodia's population were killed by the Khmer Rouge. And 70% of Cambodians are still under 30, so there just weren't old people around who could remember about those days. And if there were, they just didn't want to be asked questions. So it was a strange country to travel in Cambodia because when you're there, you're so conscious of what's happened there and this devastation yet all the people you meet are so lovely and kind and you think how did this happen here she spent a long time looking for parts of the trail she couldn't find many answers she did find perhaps the worst guide in the world to help her a grumpy racist man called mr d who hated his job almost as much as he hated everyone else he came into contact with but what she did find was the Mondulkuri Death Highway, a 90-mile dirt track through uninhabited forest which almost 
almost lived up to its name. While there'd been this skein of trails through the very northeastern corner of the country on the Troy border, I could also see that Vietnamese soldiers had walked south on this road that was known back in 2014 when I did the journey as the Mondalkiri Death Highway. This was a 90-mile track running north to south through empty forest. There was one village in the middle, but apart from that, nothing. No cell reception, no shots, no people, nothing. The Mondalkiri Death Highway even had a half page in the Lonely Planet guidebook, which said, do not attempt this track unless you are a hardcore biker with an iron backside and years of experience, and do not attempt it in the monsoon. And I thought, well, it's not quite the monsoon, and I'm a hardcore biker, me and the Pink Panther, we've got through Laos, we can do anything. You know, I like adventure. Of course, I'm going to take the Death Highway and not, like, the M25. So, rather cockily and with um, a dangerous amount of hubris, I suppose, I set off down the Mondalkiri Death Highway with the aim of getting to this one village in the middle, which was about 30 miles. And I'd taken with me lots of spare water, but it became very obvious very quickly that day that these early monsoon rains had churned this track into this pretty much impassable bog. It was just this red mud was just turned into lakes and bogs. It was such an effort getting anywhere. I was just heaving and pushing and carrying my bike through this bog. And by about dusk, I had only got about 10 miles. So I was still, I was never going to get to the village that night. And I had run out of water. I was really dehydrated. I was exhausted. I'd been pushing and shoving the bloody bike all day. Um, The bike had just started to make these terminal sounding grinding noises. And then she got stuck in the mud for the umpteenth time that day. And I just thought, I've got to make a decision here. Do I just sit here and wait for someone, I mean, who, to come past and help me? Or do I leave my beloved bike, hide my baggage in the jungle, take an emergency pack and turn around and try and walk back to the village I'd left that morning, which was, I don't know, 10 to 15 miles away. And I know that doesn't sound far, but by this point, it was almost dark. I was really exhausted. I was dehydrated. I was weak. I was alone in the jungle. And I was walking back through the jungle in this pouring rain with like mud up to my knees. And I remember thinking, am I going to get through this? It's the only time I've ever been in a situation like that where I thought, oh my God, I might not get out of this. And my mind flitted between being really calm and just thinking, just keep walking. Just put one foot in front of the other and keep walking and you'll get there. And then going into this slightly hysterical panic of, I'm going to die, and, you know, it's my own stupid fault, and I was so cocky, I should have listened to the warnings, I shouldn't have taken the Mondalkiri Death Highway. But I just carried on walking, and I don't know how many hours it was, but I was beginning to, like, hear things. I thought I could hear diggers in the jungle, I thought I could hear voices, and there was no one there. I was just getting really weak and confused. And then, at about, I don't know what time it was, about... 11 at night, I suddenly saw lights in the jungle and I thought I was imagining it, but then I walked into this clearing and it was a road workers camp. And the road was about to be upgraded by a Chinese company. And this camp was where all the Cambodian road workers were living in the jungle. They're all their diggers and machines and everything, which couldn't move at the time because of the weather. And I sort of staggered in looking, I mean, like a bog monster, basically and just, help, help, you know, I haven't got any water. 
and they all they were playing cards in under torchlight and um they all just looked at me like this ghost had just appeared out of the jungle those men were so kind i mean you might think it's suboptimal being a woman walking into the middle of a cambodian road workers camp at, at around midnight there's like 50 men and you um but i just knew instinctively that it was going to be okay and they gave me some water they gave me a little bit of rice and i and i slung up my hammock and and slept there for the night and in the morning they helped me get the bike back so they really saved me those road workers and who knows what would have happened if i hadn't come across them it was close this is the death highway after all and though 10 15 miles doesn't sound a lot in those conditions it was she'd been exposed to extreme heat and humidity all day she was physically exhausted from pushing the bike through this mud and mire for hours and hours relentlessly just determined to make it through she'd run out of water she was dehydrated and she was alone in the jungle and a long way from help people succumb to that kind of heat exhaustion very very quickly but that situation, in a way, was also exactly what she was looking for. There's been a lot of very, very tough days in Laos where I would just come to the bottom or the top of this mountain or a river and just think, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. And then you would just keep going, literally metre by metre by metre sometimes, and you'd make it. And I think what the whole experience showed me, what that journey showed me, is that... We can all do so much more than we think we're capable of. And you've just got to keep going. And I suppose I felt, you know, I'm a very self-critical person, but I remember feeling at the end of that journey, like, you know, I didn't give up. I didn't cry or give up and sit down and wail by the side of the track. I just kept going. And that was a really nice thing to know. And, and also that feeling of, okay, I'm not a mechanical wizard by any means, but there were times when bike broke down when there was no one around and I had to fix just basic things and if I'd been with my boyfriend Marley who's good at everything then he would have fixed it but I had to there was no one else to help and when there's no one else to help you work things out and it's amazing what you can work out what she worked out in those hours of delirious wandering in the jungle in the dark unsure if she had the strength to make it was that she did And that's what she had come to find out. That's why she had crossed those 2,000 miles of mud and mountains and impassable rivers and dodgy geysers and disgusting sheets. She learned she was self-reliant. She was tough. She learned she could do anything she set her mind to. And though companionship is always nice, memories shared are somehow more alive, more real when they are shared together with a friend. She wasn't reliant on that companionship anymore. She didn't need it. She wasn't afraid. And that's the sort of thing you'll never know until you're truly tested. So she survived the death highway. The bike did it. It had to be towed 30 miles to Banglong, the nearest town, and have its entire engine rebuilt for the fourth time, which says something about how tough this trail is. But the beauty of the Honda Cub and why she was right to choose it is it's so ubiquitous in this area that even in the most remote towns, someone had the part she needed. So she'd managed to fix it and she was off again, taking a slight detour along a road with death not prominent in its name to cross the border from Cambodia back into southern Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh City and the end of the trail was only 150 miles away now. The end was in sight. 
I remember it so vividly, crossing the border from Cambodia and then being in the Mekong Delta in southern Vietnam and it being so different. Again, just people everywhere. I spent five weeks in the, the mountains and jungles of Laos and Cambodia and suddenly I was in this mirror-flat landscape and this crazy traffic. This always happens at the end of big journeys. I have these seesawing emotions, you know, part of you is really excited that it's over, that you're alive, you know, that you haven't lost any limbs, that you've done this great adventure. And then a bigger part of you is so sad that it's going to be over, that this thing, this adventure that had occupied my mind and my body for the last year, really, uh, was about to be over. And then it was just going to be me and a laptop and a book to write. And... Yeah, I, I felt really emotional about finishing. And that last day riding into Ho Chi Minh City, the Mekong Delta suddenly became this huge metropolis. And there I was riding through the, again, insanely crowded streets of Ho Chi Minh City, which was Saigon. And I planned to finish at the gates of the reunification palace where the North Vietnamese tanks had smashed through the gates in April 75. And just seeing those gates suddenly in the palace, and I just rode up to the, the gates and stopped when my tyre hit the gates. I just said, Panther, done it. <laughs> and yeah, went out and drank lots of gin and tonic. Well deserved to six weeks, three countries, 2,000 miles, four engine rebuilds, and one hell of an adventure later, she had reached the end of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And I asked her, perhaps wrongly, what it meant to her to have completed the trail as a woman, as a woman on her own. Was there a kind of message or inspiration that she was trying to put out there for other women? And her answer, perhaps surprisingly, was no. The fact that I'm a woman doesn't affect how I think about my journeys at all. I am just a person wanting to do a journey. And as far as I'm concerned, there are the same risks whether you're a man or a woman. And... Yes, I had some slightly dodgy encounters with men, but I never truly felt in danger. I felt that I just really confused people. I was in really remote areas where foreigners never really went, and I was a woman on a motorbike, and people just, it just threw them. I think my advice is exactly the same whether you're a man or a woman, um, which is that so many people want to go out and do these big adventures but they think of a million excuses why they can't, whether it's money or there's no one to look after their pet hamster or they can't leave their wife or girlfriend, whatever, behind. And I think you just got to stop making excuses and go. There are always going to be reasons why you can't go, but just go and deal with it later. And I just think you use your common sense and tune into your instinct. And that doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. We are all capable of so much more than we think we are. Just get rid of the self-doubt, throw away the excuses, rip out the guidebooks and go. Rip up the guidebooks, get rid of that self-doubt, forget about your pet hamster and just go. There is no difference between us. I love that. The things which hold us back from doing these kind of big adventures are not related to gender as much as they're related to self-doubt and fear and the excuses we make to ourselves. Things we all feel, men, perhaps maybe most of all, and I think that's admirable. But I will also say, and I know this is something that Antonia feels passionately about as well, although we are all, of course, fundamentally the same, male and female, 
we are not always portrayed the same. Go into your local bookstore, switch on the TV, and the adventurers who our culture celebrates are almost all men. And the message that that unconsciously gives women and young girls is that adventure is not for them. Sure, they can do it if they want to, but really, it's a man thing, which of course couldn't be further from the truth. This thing we love is for everyone. And when women like Antonia put themselves out there as adventurers, every bit as capable as their male counterparts and more so, they become role models for all those women and young girls growing up, dreaming of mountains to climb and bikes to ride and trails to conquer. So even though she's right, it doesn't make a difference if you're a man or a woman. That's true for the journey. But perhaps she's selling herself short when it comes to changing people's minds, to changing people's perceptions, to inspiring the next generation of female adventurers to hit the road. We are all capable of so much more than we think we are. Man, woman, boy, girl, and everything in between. But you won't truly know that about yourself. You won't feel it instinctively in your bones until you put yourself out there, until you challenge yourself, until you ride your own Ho Chi Minh Trail. Thank you, Antonia. What an amazing story. Thank you so much for taking us on this adventure with you. Remember, you can download her book, A Short Ride in the Jungle, The Ho Chi Minh Trail by Motorcycle from Audible and other audiobook platforms. And it's a really great read. She writes incredibly well. And there's so much more detail in there, so much more about the adventure, about the history, and just lots more about Antonia herself. She's a lot of fun to travel with. So please do go and check that out. You can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at AntsBK, A-N-T-S-B-K. And her website is theitinerant.co.uk. And finally, as always, a big thank you to you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word. My social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. I hope this episode has inspired you. I hope it's fired you up. And I hope it's made you look at the world a little differently. And that's important because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.